All right, we're going through the book of 1 Timothy. I told you last week that chapter 1 is mildly controversial and chapter 2 is wildly controversial. Um, so if you have a, something to interject, and I, I, periodically throughout I'll, I'll ask for input, and if you do, don't mind, just raise your hand, and um, that will make it less confusing. So 1 Timothy chapter 2, I want to say two things before we start reading in the verses here. Interpreting scripture honestly takes honesty in your own heart. This is true. The first question to ask when you're reading the Bible is not, what does the text say? That's the second question. The first question that you have to honestly answer is, what do I want the text to say? And you have to root out your own preconceived biases and just take the text of scripture and read it honestly. That really is the beginning point. Part of the inspiration of scripture is the fact that God wrote it He knew that the majority of people that would ever receive it were not going to be scholars, and many of them, maybe the majority, were not even literate. But he knew and wrote it in such a way that if we approach it with an honest heart and we lean into the Holy Spirit and we take the whole counsel of God from all of Scripture, that we can understand it and apply it in a way that will be life-changing. God never gave the Scripture with the thought in mind that if you don't have all these scholars and all these books, then you're never really gonna get it. No, he didn't, he didn't. He gave us the Holy Spirit who will lead us in all truth, right? First John 2, 27, you have an anointing from the Holy One and you know all things, meaning he's going to teach you. You don't have anyone, no human need to teach you. So, oh, well, what are we doing here tonight? Hopefully, where there's teachers that is an extension of the Holy Spirit's teaching. So that is our hope um, as we go through these texts tonight. If you look at 1 Timothy 3 first, I wanna set this um, up a little bit. The, the reason is the context for 1 Timothy chapter two and chapter three is really relayed here in verse 15 of chapter three. Paul says to Timothy, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. So chapters two and three especially, Paul is giving specific instruction on how we do church when we gather together. Did you pick that up? Okay, that's important, especially as we go through chapter two because there's verses in chapter two that probably are going to chafe you and it's okay that the word chafes us, but, but I wanna ask you just to be honest with the text and see what it really says, okay? Lay aside your agenda. I know, I've been doing this a long time. That's why we call this the wrestle, um, because that's how we own scripture, is that we wrestle with it, and when it doesn't say what we want it to say, we still submit ourselves to it. Are we good with that? Okay, First Timothy 2, verse one, there's some large topics, three main topics in chapter two that we're gonna look at. Starting with verse 
2, let's read verses 2, uh, verse 1 down through verse 8. First of all, then I urge that entreaties and prayers and petitions, many translations translate that word as intercessions, and thanksgivings be made on behalf of all men. I want you to notice all of the occurrences of the word all, because there's a number of them. Um, made on behalf of all men, for kings and all who are in authority, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. This is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth, for there's one God and one mediator also between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all the testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed, a preacher and an apostle, I'm telling you the truth and I'm not lying, and a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. Therefore, I want the men in every place, and that word is men, it's not just the people, it is males. I want the men in every place to pray, lifting up holy hands, without wrath and dissension. I want you to feel the weight of this. When Paul's talking about what we do when we gather together, he says, the first priority, it's not just first in order where we have bullet points we're going by. First in importance, I want you to pray. And I don't just want you to pray for your need necessarily, I want you to pray for all men. And I want you to pray for all those who are in authority. And I want you to pray for all those who aren't saved. And he uses all over and over again. And he says, this is a priority when we gather together that we pray. There's, there's a weightiness about that. This is the first thing you've got to know when you're talk, thinking about what we do when we gather together. We're going to pray in big categories, not just in little ones. And then he gets down to, for God who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth in verse four. And so here, here's the reality. Our prayers, if we believe this, our prayers are what shapes and influences the influencers in this world. Do you agree with that? So it's, it's a huge power that we have as a church. In my view, we neglect it a lot. If, if this is really real, he's saying, look, you can shape and affect the leaders who shape and affect lives. That's his point. You can lead a, a quiet life, a good life in, in godliness. You can leave, lead a, a life of holiness. If the leaders above you are not causing trouble and re wreaking havoc in the culture, so pray for them. And there's a whole world of lost people out there, but pray for all those who are outside of Christ. There, there's, these are just huge prayers that he's saying we should pray, and, and he's speaking into the authority that God has given us as a people when we gather together to be able to pray and things get moved. I know that for whatever reason, from experience or for whatever, or it just doesn't, we just not, aren't feeling it, but, but it does make me wonder, do we actually prioritize corporate prayer enough, I mean, 
The reality is, I know we think that we're going to change culture through politics. But how's that worked out for us so far? I'm for it. I'm for voting. I think it's a stewardship that God has given us. But how has that worked out for us? Has the trend, okay, I've been around for a little while. I've, I voted, my first presidential election that I voted in was Ronald Reagan in 1980, okay? If that dates me a little bit. So I've voted in every presidential election since then. And there's been this trend like this, but it's mostly trended down. The way that things are in culture now, yo, we had conservatives in the White House. We had conservatives to control the Senate and the House and all that. That's not how we change culture. It may have an influence, but what changes culture is the power of God and the Spirit of God that emanates from the church of God when they speak the Word of God in the power of the Spirit. That changes culture but it's easier to default to picketing and and I'm doing all those kinds of things. I'm, I'm not against it, but the Bible emphasizes, the word of God emphasizes, there is a power that has been given to the church when you gather together. If you will lock arms and hearts and call out to God in the name of Jesus, things will shift. They will shift. Somebody was telling me, I had a conversation that got a little bit heated. Sometimes I'm accused of being a little bit edgy. Um, But I didn't start it. Uh, uh, You you know, when you get pushed on a lot, you're like, no, get off. Um, Anyway, we're having this conversation, and this person was telling me, the way that God changes culture is through politics. And this person was angry because the pastors didn't get up and browbeat the people, making sure they get out there and vote and doing all this stuff. And, And I'm like, well, I've been around for a long time. I've seen the time with the moral majority. I've seen the time when everything was on the ascendancy, supposedly, and the pro-life and all all of that stuff. But the reality is, if you look at it honestly, has the culture risen to a higher level of godliness or to a much lower level? So evidently it hasn't been working. And I said, this, this was pretty recent. I said, why are you angry at the pastors in Florida? We just had an election where conservatives won in historic manner. Why are you, what, what more should have been done? Like, why are you angry? But there's, there's something in some people's crawl about that they think that politics is going to shift the society. It may have some fluctuating effects but the reality is it is the spiritual power of God that changes society. Hearts have to be changed. How y'all feel about that? It's, It's absolutely true. And I believe 100%, I voted, I vote in every election. Absolutely. I wanna do my part, I believe it's a stewardship before God, but ultimately, here's Paul's thing. They had Nero as their emperor when he wrote this. Nero. Nero! He's the most demonized leader, one of the most in all of history. Murdered his own mother, murdered his stepbrother, murdered all these people because he was afraid they would try to get the throne from him. He was a demoniac. And Paul's like, pray for him. Pray for him. So can I just throw this question out there? When, when's the last time you prayed for Joe Biden? 
No, he's... Do, do we use that power that God has given us? It's amazing. Let me just remind you of a few scriptures of our inheritance in prayer. I'm gonna read these through fairly quickly, but you'll remember them, but just ask yourself, do these carry weight in my own heart and soul? Jesus speaking in all of these cases. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you for everyone who asks receives and he who seeks finds and to him who knocks it will be opened. Matthew 7, 7 through 8. Therefore I say to you all things for which you pray and ask believe that you have received them and they will be granted you. Mark eleven twenty four. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. John 14, 13 through 14. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. John 15, seven. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain so that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give it to you. John 15, 16, and this is the last one. Truly, truly, I say to you, if you ask the Father for anything in my name, he will give it to you. John 16, 23. Jesus said all those things. I wonder if that carries enough weight in our own hearts, just asking the question. There's something there about learning how to pray in Jesus' name. Praying in Jesus' name is not putting the, the lucky rabbit's foot on the end of the prayer. Praying in Jesus' name, I like what Andrew Murray says, the Lord knows whether we pray in his name not by looking at our lips, but looking at our life. Is he actually the center, the passion, the pursuit? And if we're doing it in his name, then we're doing it for his sake, for his purposes. So, sorry, a Porsche doesn't fit in those verses for you, probably. Um, It's possible that it could, but probably not. He's talking about things that have to do with his own purposes in his name. There's there's a weightiness there, and, and extends in these verses for us having a life that is godly, that we can walk before the Lord. Verse three says, this is good and acceptable in the sight of God. It pleases the Lord when we, when we pray together. That, should be, that, that would really would be enough of a motivation, right? It, it pleases him, and then he says that he desires for all men to be saved and come to the knowledge of the truth, and that's in the context of us praying for all men. And then verse Eight, he says, I want men in every place to pray. Lift up holy hands without wrath and dissension. So what does wrath and dissension mean? Why do we need to pray without wrath and dissension? It's relational conflict because the Holy Spirit dwells among us when we're in unity and the Lord commands the blessing in Psalm 133 when the brothers dwell together in unity. But when we are conflicted and there's, we're fighting, there's wrath, there's dissension, then the Holy Spirit is grieved. 
and so our prayers aren't effective. This is sobering in marriage, is it not, guys, in 1 Peter 3, verse 7, where it says, honor your wife as a fellow heir of the grace of life, as the weaker vessel, so that your prayers will not be hindered. Here's the word of the Lord. If you don't treat your wife right, he don't hear your prayers. Or at least they're hindered. That's pretty sobering. So it's important. Prayers are a heavy, weighty thing. I mean, there's so many stories of the power of prayer to change nations. Derek Prince in his book, Changing History Through Fasting and Prayer, he's got a lot of stories. One of them is particularly powerful. Joseph Stalin, the leader of the Soviet Union back in the 1950s, 40s and 50s, was probably one of the most evil men who's ever lived. He murdered 12 million of his own people. And World War II had just gotten completed and a lot of the Jews emigrated to Russia because they were being persecuted from the other European countries that Hitler was taking over. And so there were a lot of Jewish people in Russia and Stalin hated them too. And he had passed this decree, a law was passed where they were gonna start eliminating the Jews again. And Derek Prince and a group, a small group of people who were believers gathered together and they said, look, we're gonna declare a fast. I think they fasted for 21 days just seeking the face of God and trusting that the Lord was gonna do something and take care of this. And this literally happened Two weeks before that law was going to take effect, Joseph Stalin dropped dead. He dropped dead. Now, I'm not saying we should pray for people to die. I'm just saying that God is jealous and he intervenes. But that's, you can't tell me that wasn't in the power of prayer. If you've ever read the book, Reese Howell's Intercessor, where Reese Howell's had a Bible college in Wales, and he and the students made it their project to pray in World War II because the odds were so hard against the UK and the rest of the world. I mean, Hitler had such a tremendous advantage strategically, weaponry, in every way. It looked like he was gonna win. He should have won. I've heard people who lived during the war saying in their family around the table, I talked, do you think we're, do we have a chance of winning this war? I mean, it, it was that way. And Reese Howells and his Bible college students would take projects and just pray, pray against the power of the demonic in the Nazi party and pray for God's purposes to be established. And there's so many stories of the miracles that happened out of those prayer meetings. In the, and you can say, well, it was just coincidence. No, I don't think it was. It wasn't coincidence. The Lord confused the enemy. The, the majority of the British troops were on the shore trying to evacuate getting into boats and it was super slow and the weather was not good and Hitler had these tanks, the panzers that would come and they, they were just far superior to anybody else's weaponry. And so the entire army of the UK was sitting there ready to be slaughtered and they knew what was happening. And Reese Howells and his gang went to prayer and unexplainably, Hitler and his guys just waited and then this heavy cloud cover of fog came through and just rested on the whole thing for a couple of days until they were all able to be evacuated. And then by the time that Hitler's you know, tanks were coming in, they had all escaped. That would have wiped out the army of the British. 
wiped it out on that one thing. But the Lord intervened because they prayed. It's powerful. Okay, let's, let's move on to, so, so he says in verse eight what he wants men to do. What, what does he want men to do? Guys, here, here's the thing. I can say this to us as men. The Lord has given us authority, and I feel like sometimes we don't take full advantage of it in our homes, because if God has made us the head of our wives, by extension, it's the head of our family in our home, and we have authority to pray and to cause things to change. I've seen this happen. I felt the Lord encourage me over the years in my struggle to learn how to, to be a dad and to raise my kids. It's been life-changing and powerful for me. When I would see things happening in my kids, I would be like, I'm just gonna go before the Lord. I, I, I had learned to do this. I heard this first from Jack Hayford, and it marked my life. And he said that his dad used to do this, and so here the generational thing happens. But when the high priest went into the Holy of Holies, he wore the breastplate, right? the ephod that had stones that represented all 12 of the tribes. And when he would go in before, the the Lord designed it that way because he wanted the high priest to go in before the very presence of God and to call out the names of the tribes of Israel so that he would bless them. And so I started doing that with my kids. Lord, I come into your presence and I call out Jace Cameron's name to you and I pray that you would bless him and reveal yourself to him. Lord, work in his heart all of those areas that seem to be resistant to you. Would you draw him to yourself and make yourself real? Like, just that kind. And I would call my kid's name like that and I would call them before the presence of the Lord. And I can tell you, things happened. And when things were starting to go south with any of my kids, I would, I would go into the mode of high priest and go into, into the place. I saw a lot of answers to prayer, just re- reality. Absolutely, things shifted. Things that seemed like they were going bad. The Lord beckons us. You have not because you ask not. How many things in our lives have fallen into that black hole and been lost because we didn't ask? He's encouraging us to ask. When you come together, Timothy, make sure whatever else you do, you pray because I will hear and answer you. It's powerful. All right, we're moving towards the more controversial. How many are okay right now? Let's go to it. All right, so the first main thing he's emphasizing is our corporate prayer together. Let's read verses nine and 10. Likewise, I want women to adorn themselves with proper clothing. Is there a hallelujah in the house? (laughs) I didn't think so modestly and discreetly, not with braided hair or gold or pearls or costly garments, but rather by means of good works as it is proper for women making a claim to godliness. Now, this is one of the reasons I love going verse by verse through books because how many have ever heard a sermon on this? 
You've heard one. I've heard one on, online. <laughs> what, what's the point of this? Like, why is Paul, by the Holy Spirit, saying to Timothy, I, I'm commanding the women, so he, he goes for the men first, then he goes for the women, adorn themselves with proper clothing, modestly, discreetly, not with braided hair, golden pearls, costly garments. What's the point of that? He doesn't want you to dress up? What's the point? Yeah, it's, when, when you gather together, it's not about drawing attention to yourself and, and doing the show, it's about drawing attention to the Lord. And, you know, I, I've, I've honestly never been legalistic in my, in my whole Christian walk. I'm just not a legalist. And I, I think it's wrong to try to say exactly where, you know, back in the old days, the Pentecostal holiness would be like, they tell you, you can't wear pants, women, you can't, like that. To me, that's nonsense, in my opinion. But the issue is, the heart, what, why, are you, why are you wearing what you're wearing? Is there anything in the heart that wants to make a strike on the senses of people? It's a fair question. Or properly, I think, means just appropriately. Modest and discreet means not flaunting our bodies. Um, braided hair and costly garments just means not, not showing off you know, your wealth or drawing attention. Like some, some things draw attention. Like I shouldn't start saying things in particular that, that for me seem like they're, they're past the line, but I, I don't care. Here's the reality. I don't care what you wear as long as you cover yourself. Now in the early days of Heart of the Father with all college students, for real, we would have to talk and the best way to do this is not from the pulpit. Best way to do this is for loving mamas to go and put their arm around them and say, honey, you know what? <laughs> you need to wear a top that goes up a little higher than that because that's, that's a problem for the guys in here. And, and honestly, the reality is it's not loving for, for women to dress in ways that inflame an already humongous problem in men. The one message that I heard from C.J. Mahaney about modesty, he read letters from college guys pleading with the women and telling them, please, you don't know what it's like when we walk in to church and you're scantily clad. Like, it is a struggle to worship, and we're already struggling with this, and it's like throwing gas on a fire. Please, help us. There was that kind of plea. And it was really moving, and he read those to his congregation. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit awkward. But it's in the Bible for a reason, and this is part of loving. There's all kinds of ways that we can love. And we just need to keep in mind how the things are gonna affect other people. I think that's the point. Rather, ladies, instead of dressing with the greatest fashion or the things that accentuate your figure, dress yourself with good works. That's what he says. Good works are what you want to have as your garment and as your dress. We dress ourselves with good works. Here's the point. Our relationship with Jesus is supposed to affect every area of our life, including the way we dress. Just bottom line.
fairly simple, right? But these are verses like we never read. How, how, how many years has it been since you heard those verses read in church? It's been a long time. So that's what I love about it. We get to cover things that we never talk about because it's awkward. But it shouldn't be awkward because it's part of God's commandment to us. All right, now we're getting into the wildly controversial Verse 11 and 12. Let's read this. A woman, he's still on the women now. Remember, Paul's talking about how we conduct ourselves in the church. And he says, verse 11, a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submissiveness. But I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. What do you think? What do you think? Is it tough? Why is it tough? You, 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 that's exactly right. It's, it's super awkward, but why do you think it's tough? I wanna tell you why I think it's tough and why we struggle with this and why these verses get abused more than almost any verses in the New Testament that I know. Peter talks about those who um, Paul, he said, Paul has written many things that are hard to understand, and there are those who are unstable and untaught who twist the scriptures to their own destruction. And so, the word twist there has the idea of being tied to a rack. You know how they twist it and they stretch you, your arms up here and your feet down there? Say it! No, I won't say it! Say it! You torture, that's what we do with the scripture. You say what I want you to say. No, I don't say that. Yes, you will. I'm gonna torture you until you say it. And this is the way we do scripture sometimes. We're gonna torture it. I've heard some of the most tortured interpretations of verses that are very clear. I can tell you that these verses have been interpreted the way that they're obviously in the Bible since the beginning of the church until the, the beginning was in the feminist revolution in the United States in the 1960s. That's when the light came on that these verses actually don't mean what they say. That's really when it began. I know this is a little bit awkward and touchy, but it's real, so we need to look into it. So, so let's think about what he's saying here. I've heard where, where I went to Bible college, one of them, they said, well actually, the." The Greek word for woman is the same as the word for wife, and the Greek word for man is the same as for husband, and that is true. And so they're saying, what this actually says is, I don't allow a wife to teach or exercise authority over her husband. What's the, what's the problem with trying to do that? Raise your hand. Who wants to say something? I'm sorry. Say it louder. What is Paul talking about in the context? He's talking about in church. He's talking about how we do when we gather together in church. And he just talked about men praying. Do you think he just meant husbands and the guys, if you're not married, you can't pray, forget you. 
And ladies, if you're not married, it's okay if you come scantily clad in a bikini. You're good, but if you're married, don't do that. No, he, he, clearly the context is this is how guys do, this is how girls do. That, that doesn't work, and honestly, no, no respectable scholar tries to take that tack. That's, that's not a legitimate thing. Um, so a woman must quietly receive instruction with entire submission, but I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. I'm gonna show you what I believe this means, and it, it may not be quite as cringy as you think um, when we look at it, but, but here's the thing. Uh, here's, here's the question that we have to ask. Here's the lie that the feminists have told us that we have bought, and that lie is this that to be under authority is to be oppressed, to be demeaned, to be belittled, to be minimized. If you're under authority, that's abusive, and that's a lie. To be under authority in God's economy is to be protected, and to be under the spout where his glory comes out is to be open under a portal of his blessing because authority is given by God to be a blessing and a protection to those who are underneath it. That's the biblical model. It's not oppressive. There's this assumption that if you're under authority, you're automatically abused. That's a lie. If you're under authority, you're protected. The police officer takes the bullet for you. The husband lays down his life for you. There's protection and there's blessing and there's authority. Whenever God gives someone authority, he gives it to them for those who are underneath their authority to bless them. We don't think that way. We think that authority is abusive. We're all under authority. So there's seven, I have written down seven different ways that we're all under authority that scripture teaches us that we're supposed to be in submission. So I want you to name them and see if we can get all seven before I show you. Yeah. Christ is the head of every man, right? First Corinthians 11, what else? Government, civil government, yep. Okay, spiritual leaders, yep. What else? You got three, Purdy? Okay, that'd be civil government, yeah. Husbands and wives. Was elders the same thing as what? Yeah, that's spiritual leader, right. Parents, perfect. Say how many, okay. Yes, sir. What is it? Oh, yeah, yes, that's a good one. And we'll talk about that in a second. I wanted to leave that to last, but good, good job. Um, there's one other one that we missed. Nope. What is it, Linda? No, no, that would be under spiritual authority. Slaves to their masters. Right, these are all, so, so this is really, we're, we're under authority, and being under authority is a good thing. We'll, we'll read Romans 13 in just a second. Believers to each other though, Sam, really good. It says, submit to one another, Ephesians 5.21, in the fear of Christ. What does that mean? And then the very next verse says, likewise wives submit yourselves to your husbands. So this is used among some to say, well see, husbands and wives submit to each other, so it really doesn't mean anything. That's really not the point. Um, 
of that passage. But what, what does that mean when it says submit yourselves to one another in the fear of Christ? I think this is super powerful. Here's what I believe it means, at least part of what it means, is that every believer carries a measure of the grace of God in their life, and when we recognize that in them, we should bow to that, because that's Jesus. If he comes up and Doug says to me, thus and so, brother, I've been feeling this about you, or the Lord you know, dealing with this thing in you, and I sense that's, that's the Lord saying that. that he's, he's hitting something that the Lord is speaking to me, then I bow my knee to that and I go, I'm submitting to you in the fear of Christ, because you're speaking for him. It doesn't mean that you can come up and boss me and tell me whatever you want me to do. Come, come mow my grass. No, no, I'm not gonna do that. Um, but, but there is something that's powerful about recognizing the Holy Spirit speaking through another believer in our lives and us bowing to that and saying in our heart, Lord, that's you. That's you. You, you said that. How many have been corrected like that? Even sideways. Like I've been at places and gatherings and somebody said something ne- standing next to me and I was like, <laughs> they might not even know that they said it directly to me, but I was like, that was the Holy Spirit that said that. And I, I know, <laughs> thank you, Lord, <laughs> I need to deal with that. That's, that's a real thing. That's beautiful, that's powerful. So we're all under authority. Authority is not a curse, it's a blessing. It's a protection, and it's also an open window of God's blessing in our life. That's the lie that the feminists have said that they can't, reach their full potential, and ladies, this is not just a throwdown on you, but, the, but this, is, this is the same spirit behind defund the police, this is the same spirit behind parents, you can't spank your children, it's, just, it's the spirit of lawlessness. And God works through authority, and if you take the authority away, that's what the Antichrist is gonna do. He's gonna sweep away all vestiges of God's authority and culture, so that in the chaos, he can come and rise up and go, I'll put everything in order, and everybody goes, please do. And I can also show you miracles. That's, that's the, the preparation for the Antichrist coming. So that's the lie that we cannot believe. Here, here's Paul's answer. Why is this so? I, I want to show you a couple of things that are important. First of all, the, the combination of him saying, I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet doesn't mean that she, says, that she can't say anything. We know women in 1 Corinthians 11 prayed and prophesied. This is the same word quiet that's in verse two of this same chapter, where it says, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. Does that mean we don't talk? Does that mean we don't ever say anything? No, it just means that we're not. uh, Making a big show of something and throwing a fit or causing distraction. We're we're chilling, we're just chill. but I want you to notice those two things together because this to me is the key. I do not allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man but to remain quiet. Those two things together, the teaching part and the authority part equal being an overseer or an elder. That's what Paul's forbidding, I believe. Why do I say that? Because in the flow of this passage, there's no chapter divisions in the original scripture. Go down to chapter three and verse one. This is a train of thought that Paul was thinking when he's doing this, and we'll finish this chapter because these verses are interesting. But notice this in verse one of chapter three. This, this all is a train of thought. It's a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of an overseer, it's a fine work that he desires to do. 
An overseer then must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, temperate, prudent, respectable, hospitable, able to teach. So teaching authoritatively is what Paul is forbidding. Those two go together to make one picture. I don't allow her to teach or exercise authority over a man, but she's to be in submission, she's to receive the teaching, she's actually under authority, and she wasn't designed to be the one who's in authority. So why is that not a throwdown on women? I, I know, like in charismatic circles, like this, this does not fly. I've read all of the arguments, and they're all torturing. I will tell you this, the history of the interpretation of this passage in church history has always been the same up until the feminist revolution hit. That should tell you something. Just like with homosexuality. The interpretation of scripture on that has been solid as a rock until now it becomes a thing and you're an intolerant pig if you don't allow it. Like, no. The scripture is the scripture and here's, here's the thing. We should love and embrace it. So that's what Paul is forbidding, I believe, and not allowing. I've heard people also say, well, that's just Paul's opinion. He said, I don't allow. But he says that all over his letters. He says, I urge you, present your bodies a living sacrifice. Was that just his opinion? He says, I urge you to walk worthy of the calling wherewith you were called in Ephesians 4.1. Is that just Paul's opinion? He says that at least 12 times in his letter. I'm telling you to do this, but it's by the Holy Spirit. How many of you don't like this message so far? Think about what he's saying here. A woman should quietly receive instruction with entire submission, but I don't allow a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, but to remain quiet. Four, here's the reason. I've heard this too. The reason Paul did that was because in Ephesus, there were women who were false teachers and he had to rein them in and get them under control. And that's just not true. All of the false teachers that Paul called out in Timothy were all men. And there's no record in history of there being a bunch of false women teachers in Ephesus. It's just, it's just not there. That's just made up. People are grasping for reasons to try to not believe what's in the text. Um, so that's not a real thing. Here's the reason he gives. For it was Adam who was first created. He didn't say because you guys have a messed up thing there now and because in Ephesus we've had the goddess Diana and you guys have gotten out of there and some of these ladies, he's, he, he's giving the reason. What's the basis, Paul, behind you saying this? Verse 13 and 14. For it was Adam who was first created and then Eve. And it was not Adam who was deceived, but the woman being deceived fell into transgression. Okay, we'll look at verse 15 in just a minute. What's the point there? Paul is saying the reason is because God, when he created human beings, he created the man first. And in Paul's mind and in the Holy Spirit's mind, that is an indicator of authority structure and roles. This is roles. So here's, here's a question I have for you. And we'll read, you can turn if you want in your Bible, 1 Corinthians 11. But question, if in your home, The wife makes more money, is better with the books, cleans the house, cooks, 
washes the car and waxes it. If the wife is just a better manager of her home and makes more money, can she be the head of her husband? Why not? Because God ordained it. Sorry, ladies. God ordained that some of us knuckleheads would be your head. But we're going to have to give account to him for how we do that. It's a divine appointment and authority is given by God. And however much we might want to, we can't change that. Scripture is super plain. I get, listen, I, I, hear, I hear the echoes. Yeah, but what about abusive husbands? What about abusive husbands? Yeah. Well, some of them should go to jail. It's not okay. What about abusive police? Some of them should go to jail, but don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. God set up authority for a reason. What about abusive parents? Let's just get rid of all parents. Just let kids go on their own. Let's do the Montessori on steroids. What do you want to do today, honey? What do you just do whatever you want because you're the smartest person in the whole world that's ever lived. You darling, I can't believe how smart you are. You're just amazing. You're smarter than me. That'll raise great kids. I was raised not like that, but I was raised with all of the kind of, it's good to encourage, but flattery's not good, because flattery's lying. I, I jokingly say that my mama lied to me my whole life, telling me I could do anything I wanted to do. You can be anything, you can be the president of the United States. And I got in and started trying to start a business, and I said, mama lied. She lied to me. I'm not that smart. Here's the thing, we, we take the role that God has given us and we become good stewards of that. And wherever he has given us authority, and all of us have authority on some level, we exercise that as stewards of that authority to the blessing of the people that are underneath our authority. That's the way the kingdom is supposed to work. We bless them. We take the authority that we have over our children and we cover them and we bless them and we lead them and we discipline them and we train them and we help to bend that little shoot so it doesn't become a twisted tree when it gets older. And it's, I always tell my kids, it, it's easy when a, when a tree is just a little shoot like that to straighten it up. But when it gets older and it's gnarly like that, you can't straighten it up. It's really hard. So that authority is a blessing, it's not a curse. In fact, God says of the fifth commandment, children obey your parents, for this is right, and it's the first commandment with a promise. We would tell our kids all the time, do do you want the Lord to bless your life, and for your life to just be enriched by his blessing and his presence? They go, yeah? Well then that's why you have to obey mommy and daddy, because we are his authority in the home over you. And when you obey us and honor us, you're honoring the Lord. And he's like, I'm gonna bless you. It happens. So our mindset, the reason we struggle with this, y'all, the reason I'm seeing some of the looks on your face, 
is because we have been brainwashed by a culture that hates authority. And we have been brainwashed by a culture that does not understand kingdom authority is actually a blessing to our lives. And we have been brainwashed by a culture that magnifies every abuse a thousand times but doesn't tell the 999 cases where beautiful things came from underneath that covering. That's, that's the issue. So parents, be courageous. Husbands, be godly. Lay down your life for your children. Spiritual leaders, be examples and pour out your life for those under your care. That's, that's the kingdom way. We don't do away with authority. So any, anybody want to comment on this before we do verse 15? Uh, I wanna, let's, let's read in 1 Corinthians 11. I just want to show you that the same reasoning essentially that Paul gives for there not being women elders or leaders, overseers in the church is the same reason why the husband is the head of his wife. Verse three, of 1 Corinthians 11, but I want you to understand that in Christ, I'm sorry, that Christ is the head of every man, and the man is the head of his wife, and God is the head of Christ. So, let me pause there. If authority was oppressive, and authority kept us from fulfilling our purpose, then Christ Jesus was oppressed, and he couldn't fulfill his purpose because he is underneath God the Father. Is that not what it says? God is the head of Christ. And I've heard this too, and it's just, it's just not true, so let's just throw it out there and debunk it. That the Greek word for head is kephale, which it is, and that it actually means source and not authority, and that's a lie. That's just nonsense, it's made up. Um, Wayne Grudem is probably the leading expert in the world on this topic and on this word, kephale. And the word's not important, so don't get hung up on that. But listen to what he says. This, this is the word head. He says, he did an exhaustive study of ancient Greek literature from the 8th century B.C. to the 4th century A.D. That's a long time. He found 2,336 usages of this word, kephale. No one yet has produced one text in ancient Greek literature where a person that is called the head of another person or group and that person is not the one in authority, not a single case. It was never applied to a person without governing authority. All recognized lexicons, which are the dictionaries, or their editors now give head, kephale, the meaning of a person in authority over another, but none give it the meaning of source. It doesn't mean source. That's, that's another thing that's, I've heard that so many times, I've heard it preached, it's just simply not true. This is our effort to try to undermine what the scripture plainly says. So, so am I gleeful about that? No. Do, do I believe then that women can't preach and minister? You know that's not true. We have women minister from our pulpit. So why do we do that? Because they're not, it's, the issue is governing authority. That's the issue to God. And that's Paul's issue. Because Adam was created first. And then the woman, that indicates the authority of the roles that are there. So, do I believe that they're prophetesses? Absolutely, I've, been, I've been, received ministry from them, 100% powerful. Um, do I believe that women can teach? I do, 
but they're not the one who's in spiritual authority over the house. Um, I think, I believe with all my heart, I've, I've studied and wrestled through this uh, for actually decades, and coming at it from an honest perspective, I, I, honest, you know, I was raised in Pentecostal church and in charismatic churches, and this was just taken for granted that, that those verses didn't mean what they clearly say. And so I didn't, I didn't have a dog in the hunt. I'm like, I'm not a woman. I don't have a dog in the hunt. I don't, I don't care. But just looking at the text, honestly, that matters. What is God saying? And here's, here's what I believe. If we get ourselves rightly aligned with God's purposes and with his authority, we're going to be blessed. A woman is not blessed in her marriage if she goes, I can do this better than you, buddy. You just sit back and let me take charge here and some will go somewhere. How's that work out? Anybody seen that growing up? It don't work out because when we get outside of God's plan, that's the same principle of your kids running the house. Here's your bowl of oatmeal, Johnny. No, I want the blue bowl. Oh, okay, honey. Don't ever do that. Whatever they throw a fit for, they do not get. That's rule number one. Because they're telling you, you're not actually in charge. I'm in charge. And actually, God's not in charge. I'm in charge. This is not about you or about God. It's about me. And you reinforce that every single time when they throw themselves down on the ground and say, I want a cookie. Okay, just stop crying. You're reinforcing the self-will that's going to send them to hell. That was strong. Don't do that. They need to learn. There's a reason why children obey your parents is in the top five. So theologians, I'm on a little ramble, it's okay, we got plenty of time. Theologians put the 10 commandments in two categories. The first five have to do with our relationship with God, vertical. The second five have to do with our horizontal relationships with one another. Here's the thing, why is children obey your parents number five in the top tier? because it's personal with God how we deal with the authority that he's put over our life. That's how we deal with him. That's what Romans 13 said. I know I didn't go there before, but let's do it right now, and then we're gonna go back to Romans 11. But Romans 13, listen to this, verse one. Every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there's no authority, listen to that, that's a very big statement. There's no authority except from God. For those which exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. What? For rulers are not a cause for fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Do what is good, and you will have praise from the same for it is a minister of God to you for good. But if you do what is evil, be afraid, for it does not bear the sword for nothing. It is a minister of God and an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. So rebelling against God's authority, he says, he says, is the same as rebelling against him. That's weighty. But here's the thing. The authority was actually ordained for good for you. It's good. 
bowing to the authority of God in our life is good for us. And that's how we get blessed by him. That is a portal. I know we, we, we have the individualistic Lone Ranger thing and it's me and God and he's gonna bless me. No, no. There's, there's authority that he places over our life and to the degree that we bow to that and honor and do well with that, his blessing comes upon our life in greater measure. That's a real thing. That's a hard message for us in, in our society that we live in because we don't breathe that air. We breathe the air of, this is about me and you shut up. And that's not healthy air to breathe. Then 1 Corinthians 11, let's, let's finish down there, uh, these verses. I want you to understand, this is verse three, that Christ is the head of every man and the man is the head of a woman and God is the head of Christ. Every man who has something on his head while covering, he's talking about head coverings here. And the point that he's making, and do I think that women should wear head coverings? No, because in our society, it doesn't mean that you're under the authority of your husband like it did in those days. It doesn't, we, know, we understand that. The context here shows us that the meaning isn't the same. You don't see a woman with a thing on her head and say, oh, she submitted to her husband. We don't do that. It doesn't have the same meaning, but the point is in ancient society when Paul wrote this, it did have that meaning, and very often it was the, the promiscuous women, the loose women who didn't have their heads covered. So I don't think it applies, but the principle does apply, and he gets down again. He says basically the same thing that he said in 1 Timothy 2. For man does not originate from a woman, but woman from a man. This is the order of creation. For indeed, man was not created for the woman's sake, but the woman for the man's sake. He was created to be her helper. So the order of creation in God's mind, which we should take his mind, means that that is the role and the authority structure that has been established by God. For sure. It doesn't mean every man is the head of every woman. You get that, right? It means inside of these relationships, the husband's the head of his wife. So that means he can bless her or he can curse her. He can make her life beautiful or he can make her life hellish. But either way, he's going to give account to the Lord. The Lord will require that because. He is dele- what, whatever authority God has given to us, he has delegated it to us to protect and to bless those who are underneath authority. If we look at it that way, everything's gonna be good. Um, so let's look at verse 15, the last awkward, and maybe the most awkward verse of chapter two of 1 Timothy. It says, but women will be preserved or saved, same word, through the bearing of children, if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. What does that mean? Anybody want to take a, a gander? Raise your hand if you want to take a shot at what that means. Nobody? Come on, y'all, get brave. Okay, Here, here's Paul's main point, okay? In that day, clearly, being married and bearing children was normal. Would you agree? That's normative. So here's, here's Paul's statement. Let me put it in a phrase. Stay in your lane. The, the, it's not that women have to be barefoot and pregnant. It's not that. It's just stay in your lane, live for Jesus, love him, pursue holiness, pursue, pursue faith, pursue righteousness. While you're bearing children, you're, you're doing what a man can't do. You're in the home as, as the wife. Do what you're supposed to do. He says in Titus 2 that women are supposed to be keepers at home and to love their husbands and their children, right? God said that. Um, but he, here's the point. When you 
This is the point with Eve too. When you get outside of your lane, bad things happen. So Eve got outside of her lane in the garden. How did she do that? Serpent comes up and goes, hey, Bob didn't really say that. He knows. He's afraid of you becoming powerful and wise like he is that you'll know good and evil and you'll be like God. He knows that. And so Eve was deceived by the serpent. But Adam was standing there. He's the one who had been given the command by God. He's the one who had the authority of God. He's the one who should have stepped in and taken out his sword and cut the serpent's head off and said to his wife, no, don't believe that. That's not what the Lord said. That's not right. He should have covered her at that moment. But he didn't. He let her run the show and take the fruit and eat it. And she gave it to him and he ate too. And here we are. (laughs) But thank God, Jesus came and redeemed us from the fall and from the curse. So, here's the point. Stay in your lane for all of us. We we, we can't go out there and make up, let's just take ministry for example. This happens all the time. Oh, I'm, I'm an apostle. Why are you one? Because I want to be. I'm an apostle, so therefore I'm the head and I'm gonna do it. You can't do that. You get outside of your lane, bad things happen. If you keep running red lights in in an intersection, what happens? You might get through five times without getting hit, but pretty soon you're gonna die. Same thing happens. When we get outside of our lane, bad things happen. That's Paul's point here. Just stay in your lane. Ladies, stay in your lane. Guys, stay in your lane. Let's all get underneath the lane of God's authority in our life and everything's gonna be good. It's gonna be blessed. It's not a put down, it's not a throw down. How many would like to say something about this? <laughs> I just feel like we should have a little conversation and just put out there, if you have any questions, if you have anything that you wanna say, like do you wanna say, well what about Deborah in the Old Testament? Does anybody wanna say that? My question to my students was, I put this actually on one of their tests, true or false, Paul did not know about the story of Deborah when he wrote First Timothy. Deborah wasn't a church leader. She was a judge in a time where there was no king and where everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And Barak, she tried to defer to him, but he was afraid because he was a little girly man. And so she said, well, God, the glory's gonna go to a woman then, but this is gonna happen because God wants to do it. So would that be a good example of what we should look at for church leadership? No, that was thousands of years before Paul wrote this. Who wants to say something else? Let's just let's talk about it. Let's do the little wrestle. Yes. Good question. Do I be, the question is, do I believe that women can be apostles? I do not. I do not. I believe the issue is the governing authority that that is forbidden. And there's, there is a verse that Um, I would call them feminist Christians, use in Romans chapter 16, verse seven, where it talks about junia, um, and it may be junia, it may be feminine or or masculine. There's a lot of issues there, but here's the thing. It says they were well, she she and her husband, it seems like, were well known among the apostles, some translations say, 
but actually the better translation is from the ESV. They, they, they scoured it with computers. Now that we have computers, you can search every Greek phrase where it appeared for 2,000 years and see what it actually means. It's really helpful. So they did that with this phrase that's there well known to or among the apostles. Um, they searched it and actually the meaning is they were well known to the apostles. So the ESV translates it that way in a lot of modern translations. So it, was, it, was, it wasn't saying that she was an apostle in the group, but that the apostles knew of her, that she had recognition from the apostles. So no, I don't, I don't believe that, I think the issue is the governing authority. I don't think that ladies can be apostles. So, so here, let's ask this question, because this is awkward, right? I have friends <clears throat> who are lady pastors. Well, what about Maria Woodworth Eder? What about Catherine Kuhlman? What about all of these other ladies? They weren't pastors. Huh? Catherine Kuhlman was a pastor for a while. <clears throat> that doesn't necessarily make them overseers, but just because they're pastors. Well, technically it is. Yeah, technically it is. So they, they're the ones that would carry the spiritual authority. They're going to mean correction and all that stuff. So, so what do I think? I think God will use whoever. I think he uses things that aren't necessarily his best. That's what I would say about that. Do, do I think they were anointed? Yeah, they had ministries. Catherine Kuhlman had a marvelous gifts of healings. And remarkable. In her ministry, three million people were healed. And she, she would have the word on. She would call out stuff and people in big stadiums. If you're familiar with her ministry, there would be crazy. I mean, uh, the testimonials of what happened were just incredible. But she got outside of her, I feel like she got outside of her lane. She ended up getting married to a guy. It was, it was a mess. She, she made a mess of her life in a lot of ways. But God did not withdraw the gift because think about the three million people. <clears throat> she paid a price. She paid a price for what she did. Um, What's that? I said the gifts are irrevocable. Yeah, and they're for the body, and they're not for you. Yes, sir? Amy Simple McPherson. Yeah, Amy Simple McPherson. Yeah, and there's, you know, there's a lot of controversy surrounding her life as well. So whether that, you know, God's a judge. I'm not saying, I'm not saying nothing good happened out of those, but the, the question is, was it actually his design I mean, I have also known homes where kids grew up to love Jesus even though the wife wore the pants the whole time and the husband was totally passive. Well, is that testimonial that that's a good system? I don't think so. I think that's testimony to the grace and mercy of God. And when, when people like Amy Semple McPherson were, are highly gifted, very flamboyant, I mean, just people are drawn to that and so they didn't really think about the, the structure of it or whatever. So do I want to curse all the women? No, no, I don't. I think, it, I think it's just always better and you're gonna be a better result if you stay in your lane and get where you're supposed to be. It doesn't mean the gifts aren't real and they don't operate, but it's, it's like being in the wrong house, kind of. It's gonna be better if you get in, in, into your lane in, instead of being outside of a lane that you're not designed to be in. Um, and things happen. And I think with Amy Semple McPherson, I mean, only God knows the heart, so we can't make judgments, but there was a lot of crazy things that happened there where it felt like she got outside of her lane quite a bit. So, but God used her, no, no doubt. On the mission field, absolutely. A lot, lot of times, 
the, the ladies are the only ones there, and so they're, they're going to take the lead, and they tend to be more spiritually intuitive than men, unfortunately, but that's true, so they'll take the lead. Do I think that God frowns on all that? No, I, I do think, though, that he would want for us to get in, and to stay in our lane, um, and I think he made this, I, I don't know how you get any clearer, honestly, than this passage in First Timothy 2 over the way that the church is supposed to operate. I don't know how you get any clearer than that, and I know that defies Pentecostal history, but I just, my experience is that the way that the scriptures have been handled that deal with that has, has not been honest, where there's an agenda. I call it agenda-based interpretation. You have an agenda, it's just like the researchers at Harvard. If they do a study, they're brilliant, but they have an agenda they wanna to come to, and they're gonna get the answer they want, and they'll make the research bend to it, and that, that's just the way that it works. And I think that this is the same way. For me, it's a big deal to, to be honest with the scripture and what it says. And the, these, this passage here, to me, is, is as clear as, as a bell. And again, through church history, it's the way it has always been interpreted. You can read from the beginning of the church history all the way through. There's thousands of comments about it, and that's the way it everybody's understood it because it's really plain so Mary would not be the key word in all this protection say it again key word in all this yeah. protection yeah that's what we lose right if we yeah I think absolutely if we get out well you know all of those who were let's just take this modern day example all of those who got out who got angry at the police and defund the police and get rid of them that didn't last very long because they didn't have anybody to call when somebody's robbing their house, stealing their car. No, no, nobody call. That doesn't, that doesn't work too well. There is a protection there. It's not perfection, right? Ladies, can you testify that your husband has not been perfectly covering you? Okay, let's, let's acknowledge that. You can acknowledge too that us as leaders in this church have not been perfectly covering you, although it is our heart's desire. But being aligned with God's purpose is, is a big deal. And, and the thing that makes this difficult to swallow is what I said toward the beginning, that we have swallowed the lie that being underneath authority is being oppressed and minimized, and that is not true. It's not true. The Bible teaches exactly opposite of that. So, yes, sir. For instance, in a situation like a Joyce Meyer... Uh-huh. She's, I don't, I don't know if she's, you know, under, if she's the head of her, I know she has a ministry, mm-hmm. um, so is, is that out of scope? I don't think so. Okay. She's a, I, she's a teacher, <clears throat> and she's, she's, she's teaching in conventions and whatever. I don't see that as being out of line. If, if there is a relationship to where there is, she becomes the spiritual authority over a flock of people, that's to me, the governmental authority to me is the issue that Paul keys in on here because that's where you get outside line. It's not that they can't exercise their gift. This is to me where the ditch on one side, ditch on the other. The, the ditch on, on the one side is <clears throat> women can do anything, men can do better, okay, that, that, that thing. And sometimes that's true, but it doesn't mean they can be the head if God didn't say they were the head. The, the other side of, of the ditch is Mom can't do anything. They can't teach. They can't. They can't say a peep in church, and that, that's just ridiculous. 
Linda? Absolutely. 100% there's abusive leaders. And, and it will always, it has always been and will always be. But you have to decide whether you're gonna trust God with his system or whether you're gonna tell him, your system is no good, so I'm gonna do my own thing. That's not safe. Um, so, yeah, that's, that's the point. Yes? that that's real thank you for sharing that it was very vulnerable but that's a real thing and I have a heart I do I do have a heart for those who are um, thinking that they're doing the right thing see when when God has a plan for our life we can trust him and we can trust him that the authority that he's put over us is not going to suffocate his plan, but is actually going to release it. Even if it's King Saul, initially, the things that we learn underneath that regime will actually be the things that allow us to thrive and succeed later. We can trust the Lord. We don't need to take the reins and, and get outside of our lane and do things that he hasn't put on us. That's where we get into danger. So, Sam, did you Oh. When God sent his son, you know, he sent it to Mary. And he didn't send it just to Mary to just have Mary take the child and raise it by, by herself. Right. She sent Joseph to protect yeah. her. Right. And so I think that's something to look into too. Like yeah. Amen. Yeah. Mary had Joseph to protect her and provide for the family and raise Jesus up in his trade to be a carpenter. Absolutely. Yeah. That's powerful. Yes, Sam. No, something that has to do with this, what we talked about in the chapter. Yeah.
exactly going to answer what you are wanting to, to know. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that it works best. The, the way that we try to navigate spiritual gifts in this house is we want them to come to us because we want to hear what they're, they feel like they have and see if it's actually for this moment or not. But our default is, is yes. We want those to be released but I think it's more powerful if they're released underneath our authority than there's this chaos out there and everybody's calling out and then everybody's confused and we don't know what to think or what not to think. That way also, if, if it comes, I, I believe this, if it comes through the authority that's in the house that God has set there, then it's more powerful and people feel safe. You know, because if there's something that's wrong, we're, we're okay going to somebody and say, hey, <laughs> I wasn't quite right or you know, part of that was right, part of it was wrong. I mean, the, the reality is with spiritual gifts, there's not absolute perfection. Sometimes they seem to be really pristine and clear, and sometimes they're mixed, and there's, there's a mixture that happens there. So I, I guess my answer to your question, Sam, is that in, in the house, in the body, the way that I think it operates best is for things to, to come underneath the covering of the leadership because ultimately we're very conscious of the fact that we're gonna have to give account to Jesus for what happens in this house, very conscious of it. And it's weighty, but our heart is to release and to want everybody to thrive and to put forth their supply. And so we encourage that, you know that, we encourage it over and over again. But for, for that to go through um, the, the authority that's in the house, I think it becomes more powerful and it, it makes everybody feel more safe. So I think that that can happen, it should happen, but again, the, the members who have that thing need, need to come so that it can be vetted and so that it can actually be safe and it can be affirmed. Because it's more powerful, you know, I don't know if you've ever been in meetings like this, but I've been in lots of them where things, something came forth and you didn't know what to think and you're waiting for somebody to say something. Like, was that God or not? Um, and I think it's helpful for somebody to be able to stand up and affirm that, that it is or, you know, make clarification. I think it just helps the body for it to be more streamlined. Yeah, babe. I was just going to say, so Sam was asking that question in reference to submitting to one another. Okay. 
think maybe like yielding to one another with spiritual gifts or graces, mm-hmm. you know, but I but for me I would categorize that scripture about submitting to one another in a different way. It's more like Barry was saying, someone's coming up or he hears a word and he feels like he needs to bow to it, he needs to obey it. Mm-hmm. So an example of that is one time our um, I was going to just work one day a week just to, so if the car broke down, we could fix it, you know, because we had no money. And um, I was telling our little four-year-old, and of course, um, or maybe he was three, maybe our son was three and our little girl was one or whatever, they're just saying, Mommy's going to go to work one day a week, Daddy's going to take care of you, you know, Barry and I talked about it, we had the plan, and he said, our son said to me, no, no, he said, I want my mommy home with me. And when he said that, I was like, Holy Spirit, I hear you. You're speaking through my son right now. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to, so I went and told Barry, I was like, Hon, I feel like the Holy Spirit just spoke to me, and he wants me to be at home. I'm sorry, like, I know we need the money, but I feel like I just heard from the Holy Spirit. And he said, if you heard from the Holy Spirit, that's it. God will make another way. And the Lord did, and I didn't have to work. But I ended up taking care of the little girl. But anyway, um, so that was, that's an example like submitting to one another. Like even if it's your little two-year-old. No. You hear the Holy Spirit and you hear him. No. Yeah, that's true. Anybody else? All right, let's stand up and pray. We hope this message has been a blessing to you. If you'd like to join us on a Sunday morning or other weekly gathering, know that you're more than welcome. And if you'd like other resources on or about this ministry, or for any deeper questions you may have, be sure to visit our website at hotfmlakeland.com.